Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to PM Mood. I am super excited to be welcoming to PM Mood Jamel Hill, who is a staff writer at The Atlantic, covering sports, race, politics, and culture, and is also the host of Jamel Hill is Unbothered on Spotify. Jamel, thank you so much for joining PM Mood today. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I think one of the reasons why I was so excited about the opportunity to speak with you is not only because you're a badass black woman journalist, but because we have something slightly in common, which is that the both of us, me in the fall of last year, decided to put my integrity ahead of what many thought was a good paycheck. I was previously working at Sirius XM with a show that I had there, and I felt that it was my obligation to let my listeners know that Sirius XM was in fact supporting Trump and supporting him with millions of dollars of donations. And because I decided to share that on Twitter, I was fired. Unlike you, you left ESPN of your own volition, but I was let go. I was pushed out. And so I kind of wanted to start off our conversation on PM Mood with one of your quotes to other journalists, which is, tell the truth bravely, even if it makes people uncomfortable. Can you talk a bit about what it's like now to be a journalist where the profession seems to be under attack in many ways and there has been this desire to kind of acquiesce to the powers that be and use euphemisms in a time of great danger in our political climate and in our culture, what it means to be brave in this moment. Well, first, uh, I commend you for what you did. And it highlights what is a significant problem, particularly in the business and corporate America culture, is that you hear them give so much lip service, and I call it lip service because they do exactly what you're talking about, is that they will promote, they will talk about diversity, talk about inclusion, 
And then on the other end, they will fight against it at the same time by donating to people who have a clear agenda against those principles they allege that they stand for. In this political climate, which kind of leads into the question you asked me, a lot of people want to take stands without risk. Doesn't work that way. Mm -hmm. Is that you either are working actively against racism, actively against some of these values and principle that lead us to having a more diverse and inclusive society, or you're working for it. You can't be working against and for it at the same time. There is certainly an attack on journalism right now, as you mentioned, an attack on journalists. Some of it is financial attack in the sense that people should be very wary. They should be appalled. They should be quite concerned that the media business is kind of growing smaller. Fewer companies Mm -hmm. are owning more things. And that's not really how journalism was intentioned to be. When I first got into the business, a lot of newspapers were family-owned companies, and they were not at the mercy of stockholders. And that allowed, I think, for journalism to be in a different place. That's not to say that from a diversity standpoint and inclusion standpoint, it was good because a lot of the same problems that exist then existed now. But at least the type of journalism that was being done, it was different. As in there was a commitment, an active commitment to investigative journalism, to telling the truth, to holding the powers that be that are accountable. I mean, most of us got into this profession to be that. We're not supposed to Mm -hmm. be aligned with the power structure. That's not how it works. We're supposed to be actively challenging them on a consistent basis. And we do that through truth and accuracy and fairness. And so it is disheartening to me that because of the boom of social media and just the boom, even within the structures of journalism, that there's a heavier emphasis on opinion and commentary as opposed to dealing with the truth, that it has retrained viewers and listeners to only seek out news sources that already validate their opinions. Now, before that might not have been a problem because everybody was pretty much playing it somewhat straight. But now that you have networks and outlets that actively cater to opinions, often based in ignorance, it really makes a journalist's job that much more difficult. Yeah, you know, I find that, at one hand, I think that social media has democratized communication in a way that allows everyone, right, to have a platform and not just the top five news stations. It allows everyone to, quote-unquote, be you know, I spy reporters, right? They are seeing things on the ground, and then they're able to share them with the people that follow. I think about Ferguson, for instance, right, and how at the time when uh, Mike Brown was killed and people are flooding the streets in protest. And at that time, not one cable news station, as this news was breaking, as people were gathering, not one news station was covering it. And had it not been for people that were on the ground in Ferguson tweeting and sharing videos, and then it grew and grew and grew, only then did cable news decide to pick it up, right? Only then did people start to write about it. And so on one hand, I think, wow, how extraordinary, right, that the violence that affects communities of color, Black communities in particular, are not silenced, right? I sometimes ask myself, is it that there are more Black people that are being killed? Is there more injustice that is happening? Or are we just able to report on it more because of the social media platforms that we have access to? But at the same time, those same mediums have become arenas for bullying, right? Yeah. And, you know, in that respect, 
I want to talk with you about 2017. And Donald Trump, I don't refer to him on my shows as president. I refer to him as a piece of shit, but that's just me. (laughs) Um, You're not alone in that. (laughs) But, you know, Trump does what he has been doing since he was elected, and I use air quotes, around that. Since he was elected president of the United States, he's been using Twitter as his platform to bully people, specifically women of color, into silence. And back in 2017, you were the target of one of those tweets because you had referred to him as many people had reported the facts of Donald Trump being a white supremacist and being in support of white supremacists following the marches in Charlottesville, where he said that there were good people on both sides. Can you just tell folks, remind them kind of what that moment was that brought you to send that tweet and then what it felt like to be on the other end of Trump's wrath? For me, I didn't really think (laughs) I was doing anything special. And It was one of the most unoriginal things I've ever said because (laughs) I really thought that a lot of people already knew that and apparently they did not. But like a lot of people, especially people of color, especially black women, I'd reached the point of disgust with the things that I was seeing, Charlottesville, comments made by Donald Trump. And it was just kind of a culmination, fed up black girl moment (laughs) that I Mm -hmm. had. And going back and forth with a Twitter user who was trying to present the case that he was not, in fact, a white supremacist. And I think part of the reason why people are still arguing this, some people, I feel like that group is actually dwindling, is that they don't really understand what a white supremacist is. People in certain groups, certainly a lot of privileged people, they tend to think of white supremacists or white nationalists as people walking around with hoods and torches and that kind of thing, not understanding that it's far more subtle and the subtlety makes it even more dangerous. If you have the inherent belief, which Donald Trump has expressed many times, that certain Mm -hmm. groups of people are more worthy than others or more inferior than others, you are a white supremacist. It's just that simple. Like it's, it couldn't be a more clear cut definition. So what he has said about African countries, about Mexico, that's things that white supremacists say because they inherently believe that they're better. And when he was talking about how the U.S. needs more immigrants from nice countries and he named all the largely white ones, that's what a mm-hmm. white supremacist says, okay? So this is not even hard. This is not the Pythagorean theorem, okay? It's like really easy to figure <laughs> out. So it just, all the combination of seeing the things I was seeing it, it, happening in this country, just overnight it seems like the tone, tenor, climate of this country changed. And this is not to suggest that I would not give Donald Trump enough credit to say that he invented racism or that it didn't exist before he took office. It did loudly in a lot of places. But just I think we all can agree something changed in 2016. And so with me going back and forth with this Twitter user, when I called him a white supremacist and said he surrounded himself with white supremacists, which is also a fact. Hello, you know, Steve Bannon. I mean, it's like it's such a fact. Right. And Stephen Miller, like these are guys who traffic in white supremacy and white nationalism. They always have. There's not a shock to anybody who has kept themselves somewhat informed of these issues. I just didn't really think it was going to be that big of a deal, uh, which is why I said it, because, you know, I guess had I known or had a second thought that this is going to 
become the national story that it did, I don't know, maybe I would have decided not to press in, but I honestly didn't really think it was that big of a deal. And much to my surprise, it became such a big deal that Sarah Huckabee Sanders said I should be fired and Donald Trump blamed me for ESPN's ratings falling and it became this big brouhaha. I wasn't bothered by what I said. I don't regret it. It's still a fact, by the way. And Mm -hmm. I don't wish for anything differently. And the ways that it changed my life, I don't care what the president thinks about me at all. I don't care what Sarah Huckabee Sanders thinks about me. None of them. Because frankly, I don't even respect him enough to care. So it doesn't matter. But what I do care about is the fact that he has a certain element and a following and a cultish fan base that follows him that it disrupted my life having to deal with them. So that was the only part that was a little more unnerving because I remember uh, me and, well, he was then my boyfriend. He's my husband now. But me, him, and his father and another friend of mine, we were going to a Monday night football game in New Jersey to see the Giants play the Lions because my boyfriend's a huge uh, Lions fan. And so mm-hmm. I had to have security, you know, and that's not something I'm used wow. to. You know, I got a lot of death threats. There were, you know, ESPN's switchboard at the time got totally lit up. My voicemail at ESPN was deactivated the last year or so I was there. Like post-Trump, I deactivated my voicemail because people were leaving such nasty, horrible, threatening messages. I just didn't even want that in my ecosystem of my mind every day. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until actually recently that I went through some of the snail mail that I received. I had it tucked away, but for an event I was doing, a storytelling event, I decided to read it and make it kind of a part of the speech that I gave. And, you know, it was harsh. Like, it was hard hard to read. It doesn't affect my spirit because I know who I am. These people don't know me. But just to think about the level of hatred that he can inspire in a lot of people is really frightening. And so that was the way it disrupted my life. And even having to deal with all of that, I still wouldn't change anything I said, because I think as journalists, that's part of our job is that we have to say what it is. If we lose our capacity to tell the truth, then we've undercut and undermined everything we stand for. Like we can't, you mentioned uh, a few moments ago about how we're in this time of euphemisms where so Mm -hmm. many Newspapers and media outlets have a problem telling people that Donald Trump is an outright liar when he lies constantly. Like, it's okay to call him a liar because he's lying. (laughs) He's not telling the truth. They'll say a bunch of things like, here's another falsehood or here is something that we fact checked. And I said, you know, if you can teach a kindergartner right, right from wrong, right, true from false. And say, that is a lie. You know, we don't lie, which many parents and caregivers tell their children not to do. Then why are these decorated newspapers and outlets dancing around that fact? And I said, well, the Washington Post has a tracker. And up till this point, they have tracked over 16,000 lies that the president of the United States has told. Correct. So it's okay to call him a liar because... He is. And so, you know, this is not somebody who gets caught in one or two lies, as you just mentioned, that horrific fact we're talking about 16,000. But even when I engage the few times, because it's becoming less and less, it's like when I engage in people who support Donald Trump or are just not as bothered by what he has done to this country, 
and this presidency in particular, because I hope people understand that the office of the presidency will never be the same now, ever. Mm-hmm. And he's permanently changed that, is that they want to use euphemisms like, oh, he's just not politically correct. Like, no, 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 no. Politically, not being politically correct is maybe swearing when you shouldn't. Occasionally, it could be joking about things that are taboo. That's not politically correct. It is racist to denigrate and say some of the things that he said about other people. It's like, that's what that is. And I think the people who continue to support this man, they will not own up to the fact that the reason they support him is not because he's not politically correct and they're so tired of the political correctness of, oh, I don't know, respecting people and giving them their dignity. Um, <laughs> which, I, I again, I always find that isn't that fascinating when they say that. It's like, what does that even mean? They're supporting them because they believe in what he says. It's just no other way around it. Hence why I said that, yes, at this point, you can think it's harsh. Your feelings can be hurt about it. If you support the president, if you voted for him, you're a white supremacist because either one or two things are the case. Either mm-hmm. you're OK with white supremacy and racism, which what does that say about you or you believe what he believes? So either way, because I find the people that are just OK with it happening and saying like, oh, well, you know, I get this out of it. So, yeah, he could be a wild racist. Cool. You're a white supremacist. Own up to it. Right. You don't like just, to hear it, but I don't care about hurting your feelings anymore. Yeah. I think that it's important for people to own those things. But I also think that it's important for journalists to press people on that. Right. Like, you know, following the 2016 election, we had I don't know how many articles that came out that said that the reason that why Hillary Clinton lost wasn't the fact that Vladimir Putin stole our election. Right. Wasn't the fact that he propped up Donald Trump. Wasn't the fact of all of these things was because Hillary Clinton paid more attention to ideas identity politics. And that was the problem. Right. And so if we want to win elections, we can't talk about race and we can't talk about racism. And we have to pretend that the people that voted for Donald Trump did so out of economic anxiety. Well, we've had I don't know how many studies that have come out because white people really need studies. I don't know how many (laughs) studies that came out that said, in fact, the opposite. The reason why white folks voted for Donald Trump was because of white nationalism, was because they are fearing the demographic shift because they know what it's like to be on top and how they've treated everybody else on the bottom. And they're afraid now to be on the bottom. Yeah, which is really interesting because even when we have those opportunities, we've rarely taken them. The fear is that I think the realization that is exactly what you said. But on top of that, it's the realization that maybe they weren't as smart as they think they are. Maybe they're a lot more mediocre Mm. than they want to acknowledge. Mm -hmm. And the reality is that some of them, not all of them, have been able to ascend to certain positions, attain certain things, not based off their talent and ability, but purely based off their positioning and because of white privilege. And that's a hard thing to reconcile with, is that you have been an active participant in keeping alive institutional racism. It's hard to face that. And that's why I think people get so defensive. And as much as they keep, you know, consistently, we've seen a bunch of these videos on social media. And it particularly, unfortunately, happens to uh, Hispanics and Latinos more than anybody. When they get that, why don't you go back to your country or why don't you do this or why do you do that? Which is really funny in a nation founded on basically immigrants. But that's neither here nor there. Mm -hmm. You know, the reason that it's drawing that response is like their worst nightmare is that they will walk into a grocery store and everybody in there will be speaking Spanish and they have no idea what's going on. Juxtapose that with the fact that we deal with that all the time. 
is that, yeah, white people may not be speaking a different language, but we're far more used to encounters where we're the only person in the room of color, the only woman, the only black woman, the only black person. Any of those categories we fit so we can adapt. It's not a big deal for us. They, on the other hand, have never been forced into those situations or usually they aren't. And so because of that, I think it has created a sense of panic and it doesn't help. Again, as I mentioned, where unfortunately media has played a part in this is that if they believe that they can go to outlets, Hello Fox News, that only continually reinforce that belief that they have something to fear by this country becoming more inclusive and diverse and them not being the majority. So they're allowing themselves to be played by a fear that is so baseless and ridiculous that they have decided to push their center of the chips to the table. They don't care about how immoral it is. And I'm especially tickled by these Christian evangelicals who (laughs) continue in their utter disrespect of God, who they supposedly stand for, continue Mm -hmm. to supposedly continue to support this man based on nothing else but white supremacy. That's it. Right, right. You know, I'm so grateful to hear that, you know, had you had the opportunity to do things over again, right? And I know that you've said this many a times in 2017, if you had the opportunity to say, you know what, I'm not going to send that tweet, or I'm not going to respond in this way that you said that you wouldn't do it over. That in fact, having done that kind of changed the trajectory of your life in some ways. Can you talk about what it means to own your power and your voice in a way now that is different from before the tweet? I've always considered myself as somebody who didn't pull any punches, but I was strategic about the punches that I threw. And now I think while I am still somewhat strategic because I, you know, I've always wanted to be the type of person that, you know, when I said something, it resonated and it mattered. And so I wanted to be careful about what I decided to be vocal about So that part still exists, you know, to some degree. But I think, you know, what happened, especially given how my work life is designed now, I have a sense of freedom and autonomy and confidence that I haven't had to this level at this point in my life and career. Because ultimately, the people that want to mess with me mess with me and the people who don't, don't. And I don't find myself feeling as if I have to edit myself or feeling as if I have to curb who I actually am or that I don't have to say certain things, you know, for fear of, oh, it may cost me this opportunity or that opportunity. I haven't thought about that in a long time because once, you know, the White House calls for you to be you know, fired. I mean, I think people pretty much know what they're getting. And so um, (laughs) so there's no surprises to sum it up this way. And so not to continue to ramble is I'm more concerned about the people in the room. I don't think about the people who are not there. It's a party analogy I like to use is that I'm worried about throwing the dopest party for all the people who want to come to the party so that, Mm -hmm. you know, when it's 2 a.m., they ain't trying to leave. They got all the drinks they want to get. You know, they having a great time. I ain't worried about the people outside in the line trying to get in. Not worried about those. Worry about having the dopest party of the people that you have around you. Forget about the people who aren't there. And so having that mentality, I think, has allowed me to write the best that I've ever had, to broadcast the best that I ever had, to do my podcast in a way that I don't think I would have done it two years ago. It's just given me just a new and renewed sense of confidence in myself, in my abilities. And I'm constantly getting proof and evidence that you don't have to 
curb your integrity, your beliefs to fit into this industry. So I don't care about really fitting in that way anymore. And I'm grateful and I thank God that I've reached this point of autonomy because I've spent over 20 years in this business building to get to this point. And so I can't regret anything that happened along the way, because if I did, I may not have been able to get here. Essentially, your description of where you are right now is essentially the description of Black Girl Magic. It's the idea that, you know, there are so many obstacles that are placed in our way or duct tape tried to be placed on our mouths to shut us up. But the ability to keep not only pushing forward, right, but to create something that is yours. That's why there are more black women entrepreneurs in this country than any other group, because we will consistently create, right, in the absence of roles being created for us. And I personally love that about black women. Yeah, I mean, with black women right now, I believe statistically, we're the only racial ethnic group that owns more businesses than our male peers. Mm-hmm. So it's... um. I think a lot of us have decided, and I noticed this trend, honestly, among millennials, too, who, because of the access to information and everything, they're able to get this point, I think, quicker than a lot of people from my generation and certainly from the generation that's above me, is there's a lot of us that are choosing for our mental health, for our financial health, for a multitude of reasons, we're choosing to do our own thing versus try to fit into a corporate structure or to a system that wasn't designed to ever consider us anyway. We just decided, I guess for lack of a better analogy, a lot of people now I notice more so than ever are taking the Tyler Perry approach. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, I love all of Tyler Perry's movies, but I do (laughs) appreciate... I was going to (laughs) say. Yeah, I do uh, appreciate how he systematically, methodically created his own system. He never worked within the confines of Hollywood, ever. And I think he's a really great example of what can be accomplished and what you can do when you decide that you're going to create your own table as opposed to waiting for somebody to invite you to one. Mm -hmm. I think that that's right. As someone, and I will openly admit, the fact that sports is not my go-to, it's not why I just adore you. It's just the boldness in the way that you write. And I have noticed, and maybe I'm wrong, but I obviously want your thoughts, is that you mentioned before you would not necessarily have said some of the things that you have said on your podcast, Unbothered, or written in the way that you are now writing for The Atlantic. And some of the pieces that come up for me are, you know, the NFL owners have a problem with coaches of color. Would you have written that in the bold way that you did a few years ago? Well, I think, and I've written and had commentary while I was at ESPN about the NFL, you know, and their lack of diversity in hiring. But I didn't make as specific of the arguments as I made for the Atlantic. At ESPN, you're in a much more uncomfortable position because ESPN is in business with the NFL. And one of the Mm -hmm. reasons I chose to go back to writing and go back to writing for a publication or entity where writing was the main thing and, Mm. you know, they weren't in business with any leagues or anything like that, is because I wouldn't have to worry about trying to juggle and navigate an uncomfortable position of trying to write honestly and truthfully about a situation while knowing that the people you're doing it for are in business with the people you're criticizing. And even though no one at ESPN ever told me I couldn't say certain things about the NFL, as the old adage goes, what's understood need not be said. And Mm. so when I wrote this particular piece for The Atlantic, 
I wanted to broaden it out and not just look at the plight of black coaches in the NFL, but related to the plight of black people, period, in corporate America. Mm-hmm. And which is why I, I referenced that study that was done that, you know, showed the level of dissatisfaction that black people have who work in corporate America because the NFL operates very similarly. And generally, I mean, right now in this country, it's four black CEOs of the Fortune 500 companies, four. So you're not going to convince me 496 others are smarter than all the black people, right? But they have convinced themselves of that. Of course. And I think that that to me was what was, you know, so alarming about the piece that you wrote because it goes into your piece where you're just like, this is the reason why there weren't black quarterbacks because there's this belief that black men can't lead. Right. right. And Correct. and it goes back to these ingrained stereotypes of blackness. Right. And white superiority. And I thought that the correlation that you were making between corporate America and the NFL and how they function together goes deeply into the roots of America. Right. And our belief and structure creating systems around white superiority. And understanding that to be true, regardless of the industry that you're in. I mean, that's a bullseye right there, everything you said. And that's why in the column I wanted to address the fact that whether they want to admit it or not, they have certain, as you said, ingrained stereotypes about black men. And that's why they do not see at this position them as leader. They think white leadership is inevitably better. And that's Mm -hmm. why the goalposts keep moving and... There is a lot of black coaches that are getting caught up in the spin cycle because the NFL, when they're doing hiring cycles, it's always some architect of what they're trying to find or archetype, I should say, of what they're trying to find because of, you know, the success of some younger coaches. Suddenly the in vogue thing was to hire 30 some year olds that didn't have a, a ton of experience but they were considered to be able to better relate to the players because they were closer in age and they were more open and hip in terms of installing new offenses. And they just had the millennial approach to relating to players. Meanwhile, mm-hmm. for decades, you've been telling black coaches, no, nah, you got to have a lot of experience. That's the only, that's why you guys aren't getting jobs. You don't have enough experience. Meanwhile, everybody's looking around the league and seeing a number of coaches, black coaches who have been in the game 15 years, 20 years, held a bunch of different positions, still can't get a job. So they moved the goalposts real quick. Now all of a sudden Mm -hmm. it's about younger and more dynamic. Okay, that's fine. Do what you do. Then all of a sudden it's like, well, who can relate to the quarterback and who's been a quarterback's coach? And and that's more important. It just continually is a game of leapfrog where the NFL is just moving the line all the time. And the reason why they are is because the truth is they just don't believe in black leadership. Just say what it is. And they believe in it at certain positions, but they don't consider it's the same stereotypes, as you mentioned, that held the league back from having a proliferation of black quarterbacks. Quarterback is considered a face of the franchise leadership position. You have to be able to inspire 50-something other men to follow you, to run through a brick wall for you, and they never thought a team would get behind a black man in that way. Part of it is they're projecting because they don't do it. So they're thinking, why would these other dudes do it too? And they don't do it in in, in their business life, in their personal life or whatever. You know, there's a reason why we've had 45 presidents. Only one of them has been black because of Mm -hmm. our idea in this country. The picture of leadership is always somebody white. And it's why we're in this kind of complete fuckery of a democratic 
presidential field right now is because you see what's emerging. And I was like, wow, that's really interesting. So now we've gone all the way back to the only people who can beat Donald Trump are other old white men. Okay, congratulations. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so it Congratulations becomes, for turning the clock backwards. Yeah, precisely. But it gets back to that same feeling. And I'm not going to totally blame, you know, white people for it. I'm not going to say I would blame black people for it. But a lot of us wind up inheriting and adopting those same stereotypes that the oppressors have <laughs> of our own people, of thinking like, uh, it's not going to be good enough because of this. And so... Anyway, long story short, or, you know, just again, to to stop my rambling, is that (laughs) the way that I attacked what I wrote was in a way that was infinitely more nuanced and a little more direct to the target than I know I would have done at ESPN. And that's, you know, one of the reasons why, and this is not to demean or disrespect my time at ESPN. It's the best job, you know, I've ever had. I was there 12 years the majority of those years were very happy and I grew as a journalist in ways I could not have imagined. But at the same time, you know, ESPN is a part of this ecosystem that I wanted to be able to write a little more honestly about. And I've been able to do that at The Atlantic. Yeah. And I, you know, and I love one of the other quotes that you said about your time at ESPN and your decision to leave, which is that two things can be true at the same time. They, ESPN, can protect their business and I have the right to protect my integrity. And I think that that, to me, sums up, you know, a truth that real journalists, and I emphasize the word real, in this day and age really need to hold on to, this idea of where their integrity lies. And look, I am not somebody that is going to tell anyone to turn down a check, right, and and not be able to pay their mortgage or their rent or, you know, provide for their families or themselves. But at the same time, if you don't have integrity, what do you have? Right. If you can't really look yourself in the mirror or feel good about the work that you're doing, then what are you doing? Yeah, well, that's and very so true. I, and so I feel like the decisions that you have made and the movements that you have made over the past couple of years really signify that and make you emblematic of integrity in journalism and what that looks like. And I feel, you know, too, that it has been over the course of the fuckery of this entire administration that it has been black women in a variety of places and spaces that have been holding down the integrity of this country. I saw somebody tweet this, and I don't know if it was because it was their thought or the thought of someone else, is that you look across the span of our history, Black women have always been the conscious of America. Always. Always. And I think it's an unfair burden, frankly, and one that we shouldn't be strapped with regardless. One of the last things that I would love to get your thoughts on, obviously you have throughout the stance against Colin Kaepernick and him not being signed and then the the bogus workout that was put together and then Jay-Z deciding to create a partnership with the NFL. You've been very outspoken for the past several years on this. Why do you feel that, and don't let me put words in your mouth, but this is really like my feeling, why Do we as a country see, is it okay for us to embrace men that are batterers, sexual assaulters, addicts, and what have you? We can rehab those people, right, and keep them in the league or keep them in positions of power. But when it comes to black people owning their space, their place, their voice, and trying to bring attention to oppression— that is still very much being experienced, we need to shut them down. And that's from, you know, the NFL onward, right? 
And I feel like, one, this is a two-part question. Why is that seemingly okay? And then two, what do we do about people that decide, like a Jay-Z, who I have admired and appreciated from a business standpoint, from a music standpoint, from basically my whole life, what does it say about those that then decide to create partnerships with whom I believe to be, you know, the devil in sheep's clothing, the wolf in sheep's clothing? Well, the reason why Colin Kaepernick is such a turnoff, but somebody who has been accused of or has actually committed domestic violence is not, is because in the eyes of sports fans, and maybe in the eyes of, of more than just sports fans as well, but that is a correctable, and I put this in air quotes, behavior. Like you can convince somebody that wants to just enjoy the games and isn't trying to be too turned off if they have to think too hard about who these players are and in some cases what they've done to harm other people. You can convince them they don't do that anymore. You know, that's why they go through these intense processes to show people they're different and nothing we don't ever actually see what's different only two things usually changes and that is because we don't know these people we have no idea right the only thing that usually changes is they start winning and there's a rush in sports in particular to associate winning with character and they have nothing to do with each other or they just stay out of the news that's it it's like Mm -hmm. far as we know They're not beating any women or assaulting any women because we haven't read about it. So we just then make the leap like, oh, they've changed. So these are easy things to sell to the public. What you can't sell to the public is that Colin Kaepernick woke up and and he said, you know what? Despite everything I said about police brutality, y'all are right. Police don't brutalize black people. They don't. You can't change somebody's critical thinking in their mind that is especially about something that is about a system of oppression and institutional racism. You can't sell to people that they don't think this exists anymore because it does. And it's much more uncomfortable because it's in your face. And a lot of people then have to start projecting inward and say, okay, well, if I'm okay with this structure, again, what does this say about me? If I don't want to be reminded of the fact that these players that on Sundays that I put on this high pedestal that I deify, I don't want to be reminded about where they come from and the dangers them and their children face. I don't want to think about that. I want to say and name things like keep politics out of sports when every game I go through, they sing the national anthem and there's military flyovers. I don't want to think about that. So everybody kind of wants this to be easily digestible, and it never has been and it never will be. So you have to be willing to do the tough work of thinking your way through it and, you know, understanding that life and things are complicated. And while I do get, especially in this time, that a lot of fans just want to enjoy their sports and not think about the atrocities happening in the White House or the the horrors of this administration or just don't want to be reminded about shit period that's going on, I get you want to unplug for two hours or three hours and just worry about who scored more touchdowns and what this means to your fantasy team. But that ain't life. And I think because we've seen sports, politics, race, gender always intertwine, the only thing that's different with Colin Kaepernick is that right now people are trying to act like he won't be on the right side of history. The only thing that changed about Muhammad Ali, why he became embraced? Well, it was two things. One, he got sick. Two, everybody saw he was right. Years later, once everybody was able to do the autopsy on Vietnam and everything that happened, they're like, damn, he kind of had a point. 
But why are you waiting to after the fact? If you consider yourself a little bit courageous, a little bit brave, the time to support people is when they're going through the worst shit, not after they've been proven right. It's very interesting to me that the International Olympic Committee, well, I guess it started from the United States Olympic Committee when it came to Tommy Smith and John Carlos, who raised their fist, you know, over 50 years ago to bring attention and awareness to the fact that despite standing on this medal stand and representing America, they were not welcome in their own country. They were kicked off the team, totally ostracized, just criticized in every corner, called all the same things Colin Kaepernick is being called, only for years later the Olympic Committee to say, oh, we want to honor them. And at the same (laughs) time, pass a resolution that bans athletes from making those similar stances on the medal podium. So it's like the more people say, oh, you learn from history. No, we do not learn from history. We literally do the same shit over and over again. So that's one piece of it. Your second question about aligning partnerships. This has always been the tension in the movement within our community, civil rights movement, every movement. Is it better to work from within or work from outside and put the pressure on the people that you're trying to change, often through economic means, boycotting and the like? Both can be accomplished, but when you choose to work from the inside, as Jay-Z is choosing to do, you got to be careful and aware of who you're dealing with. And this is not to discredit or disrespect Jay-Z, who's very smart and obviously become I mean, hip-hop's first billionaire. Like He knows what he's doing. But the NFL is different because of the structure and the setup. This is 32 owners who operate as independent nations. To get Mm. approval by the owners is difficult. And people are saying like, oh, maybe he's trying to make an ownership play. They've never had a black owner. And I can tell you, Jay-Z ain't going to be the first one. I hope I'm wrong. And by being an owner, I don't mean a stake. You can have there's a lot of black celebrities that do have stakes and teams like Serena has a stake of the Dolphins. You know, I think J-Lo does as well. So there's a lot, you know, you get like 0.5 percent or 0.2 percent. You have no hiring power, no firing power, no decision-making power whatsoever. Zero. Unless you can get to that magic number of 51% of owning an NFL team, that's the only time you can change anything that's happening. So Roger Goodell works for the 32 owners. The 32 owners weren't at that PR show that they made about the partnership. What is it that the NFL has that Jay-Z needs? The answer's nothing. Nothing. They need nothing. him. <laughs> okay. I mean, he he rapped about it. Yes. You don't, I don't I don't need you. You need, need me. me. I feel I feel stadiums too. Correct. Rapped about so it. it's like, why give them what they want? Because what they were trying to do, and they pointed this out. The New York Times did a great story about this when they got the audio tapes of the meeting that happened between the players and and the NFL owners, as they tried to sort out what to do about this protest, one of the things that was said in the meeting by the Bills owner, he said it. We need a liaison. We need a face to take the issue of social justice away from Colin Kaepernick from being the face and project it onto someone else. Hello, Jay-Z. It may not have been you specifically that were a part of the game plan, but their game plan was to get a black person to help them ease their way into the good graces of the black community. And they got somebody who obviously is universally respected by most of us. And immediately it put everybody at odds. It took the heat off the NFL. You can't say it's time to move past Colin Kaepernick when the NFL has created an entire social justice campaign that they would not have cared about if not for Colin Kaepernick and just erase him from the picture. 
if Jay-Z wants to change some of the structures in the NFL, while I'm sure the money the NFL has created in partnership with Jay-Z and the Players Coalition, it's going for real things. And there's tangible successes that are happening on the ground in the trenches. That's great. What the NFL needs to address is why is there only one black general manager? Why has there never been an NFL owner? How come there's only in this hiring cycle, there were nine coaching openings and only one person of color was hired? Why are there only, uh, I think it's three coaches of color as head coaches? That's the stuff the NFL needs to deal with. And I'm sorry, as the curator of the Super Bowl How is Jay-Z getting them better musical acts going to change any of that? It won't. He's not an owner. He's not going to be able to walk into Jerry Jones' office and say, you know what, hire this black guy. Nah, it doesn't work that way. So to me, they got everything they wanted out of the deal, which is reestablishing that relationship with the African-American community because they know there's a lot of black fans. It was so much attention It's much like with all the stories that have been about the election and leading up to the election about how, you know, they become these endless stories about the heartland and what rural voters think and all this and that. Right. Such a concentration on them, which I read as we just care what these white people think about this election. And that's it. I was like, okay, never mind. Like 85 percent of people live in metropolitan areas. You focus on the three that live in Kansas somewhere. Cool. Do that. So (laughs) beyond that. It's been the same thing with Colin Kaepernick. A lot of focus on all the people who don't want Colin Kaepernick on their team, who don't like Colin Kaepernick. Meanwhile, his stuff is selling out in Nike. They can't keep any of his things on the shelves. Black people and a lot of other people of other races support Colin Kaepernick. It's probably just as many on both sides. But the NFL decided to cater to only one group. And that group is led by the president. Because that was a big piece of this, too. Donald Trump sealed Colin Kaepernick's fate. And that sham workout, again, wasn't going to change that. Donald Trump told Jerry Jones, which Jerry Jones testified during Colin Kaepernick's grievance hearing. Donald Trump told him not to put Colin Kaepernick on a team because this is a winning issue for him. In other words, one of the few things that a lot of people who aren't Trump supporters could kind of agree on a little bit was that his protest was misguided and misplaced and it didn't have a place in the NFL. He knew that, which is why he kept saying his name at rallies. He was going to get one topic that he could probably get a little bit more than majority support, unlike some of the other things that he says. And he pretty much told the NFL, if you put this dude in the league, his name is never getting out of my mouth. The NFL wants to eliminate those bad headlines, eliminate that division. So the easiest thing to do was to make sure that Colin Kaepernick never had a job in the NFL. No amount of partnership was going to change that as far as Jay-Z being involved. And so that workout was just disgraceful and disrespectful to Colin Kaepernick. And you know what? He went through it anyway. And so for those people who question whether or not he actually wanted to be playing football again, why would a man who hasn't played since 2016 be in nearly perfect shape? Why would he put himself through that if he didn't actually want to play? So it's just... I love Jay-Z. I respect him still. I respect everything he's done for the community. I just disagree with him doing this particular thing because I think ultimately the juice will not be worth the squeeze. And we will find that out as time goes on. Jamel, thank you so much for your time and for joining PM Mood. You continue to inspire me and so many other people in the media profession 
I'm just very grateful for your power, your badassery, your boldness, your black girl magic. Really, genuinely appreciate you. Well, thanks for having me on. This is a great conversation, and I appreciate it. You thinking of me. <laughs> of course, of course. If you want to hear more from me, check out my live daily political talk show, Woke AF Daily, at DNR Studios. You can subscribe now at www.dnrstudios.com slash woke. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.